Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, global refugees and American leadership. So, Richard, over the past few weeks, we've seen this massive crisis of uh, migrants from the Middle East spilling into Europe. And you write in your newest column for Defining Ideas from Hoover that you place a fair amount of the responsibility for this on the Obama administration and the way that they've conducted their foreign policy. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I, what I did in this particular speech or paper was to contrast the president's speech of September 11th, 2014 and his non-speech of 2015 and try to read between the lines. Uh, what's happened, of course, is that people don't leave their homelands for no reason. They leave it because basically the ability to stay there is so imperiled by threats of uh, basically forced conversion, rape, murder and mayhem uh, that they find it better to give up everything they have in order to get on some dinghy or raft in order to make their way over to um, Lesbos or to Greece or to Turkey or to anywhere else. And so the question is, what's going to influence their willingness to stay or to go? And if, in fact, the year were 2008 and you had the surge and you had Mr. Petraeus, if something like this happened in your particular community, you would see an American troops or American-led forces of Iraqi origin who would come out there and counteract the thing. And so what you did is you build up a positive environment. What the president said the day he got into office is that we're going to responsibly leave Iraq, but there's no responsible way in which this can be done. What you do is you create a power void, and now when the disasters start to come, it's going to be the local police, all of whom are corrupt and bitter and fighting with one another, who have to come to your rescue, and it's of no success. ISIS starts to form, and they, of course, run a complete terror operation from top to bottom. And when you see no sucker at home, what you do is you pack your bags, and you take incredible journeys elsewhere. And why do you take these risks? Because you know that there's going to be murder, mayhem, and slaughter if you stay put. Um, what we're trying to do now is essentially to figure out how we regulate the flow so as to return it to some degree of humane proportions and operation. What we're not prepared to do, and the president's silence on this is deafening, is to actually reverse course and to try to root out in a systematic way what's happened wrong. So when you start saying that ultimately we're going to degrade somebody, what you've really told them is don't count on any help from us in the short run. You write in your piece – this is discussing that 2014 speech, which was delivered right as we were first kind of conceptualizing of ISIS as a threat. Um, you write in the piece, quote, given Obama's rhetoric, our enemies know that they have a clear field of operation. The stirring words that the president would hunt down terrorists who threaten our country wherever they are carried with it two dangerous caveats, one of which you explain here is that, quoting again, he was not prepared to hunt down terrorists who threaten millions of other, that is not American, innocent lives, close quote. So Richard, there are, there are a lot of Americans who even if they have empathy for those individuals will tell you, look, you know, we can't solve everyone's problems. This is a terrible situation in that part of the world, but it is at the end of the day not our responsibility. What, what do you well, say to those folks? Well, I think it's just wrong. I mean, and on two grounds. One is that um, 
it to some extent is our responsibility. We went in there. We made very strong nationwide promises during the surge that we would basically stay by and help these people out in the event that there was any insurrection. And what we did is we changed administration. And what the uh, president did is he didn't think that these were commitments made by the United States. He said they're commitments made by the Bush administration. I'm free to walk away from them. But there are lots of people who have acted in detriment and in reliance on those particular statements who are now just simply left to draw it. And, you know, it's the standard principle of contract law. If people change a position to their detriment on the strength of your promises in ways that you want them to do, and then you walk away from them, you're in breach of a promise. Now, this may not be enforceable in international affairs in a court of law, but it's not something that you could ignore. And the second point is that there's an annoying form, nauseating form of really strong moral isolationism in this particular situation. Yes, you don't have to do anything to help here. You didn't have to basically go to the aid of, of, of Great Britain against Germany and all the rest of that stuff until they attacked us. But nonetheless, we felt that in order to save lots of lives and to protect Western civilization, um, we had better do something. And since we were already there, the question was not whether we get ourselves re-involved in a situation. It's the question of whether or not we stay the course that we had already started. If the Obama administration had basically said, look, I think that the surge was a sensible position, it's managed to achieve gains, we'll consolidate those gains, and that we hope over time we'll be able to reduce our commitment as we strengthen the ties that we have in these countries. But that's not what happened. We announced that we are leaving, and then two things take place. One is our enemies now realize that they can mass without repudiation. And secondly, we don't have any friends anymore. Uh, So if you do it in this particular fashion, there's nothing that you can do to keep the factions inside Iraq from killing one another. And indeed, the day after the president withdraws the last troop from last troops from Iraq, what happens is the prime minister arrests the deputy prime minister for treason. And of course, that's a basically a surrogate for the Shiite-Sunni dispute. It doesn't matter who's arresting whom. You just know that if we're away, all of these factions will start to arise. And when the president says, I will come in after you guys repair your alliances, he's got it exactly backwards. The only way that those alliances will be repaired is if we get in at the front and basically promise to help those who are cooperators and punish those who are not. And so I think, in effect, that on all of these grounds, it's not a situation that we can, in good conscience, wash our hands of. Changing American foreign policy, ramping up a military presence, those are things that, even if they were to happen under the Obama administration, would take some time. In the the interim, in the short term, as we're dealing with this refugee crisis um, in the here and now, for the United States and I guess really more acutely for Europe where most of this is happening, what, what strikes you as the proper response from the countries that are having demands placed upon them by an influx of migrants? I think what they try to do is to get a combination of public and private support in order to set up temporary facilities which will allow these people to survive in some degree of dignity. I mean one of the things you want to do is not only call on the Red Cross but if you could find any religious or evangelical institution that wants to provide help, uh, you should open the doors. One of the tragedies that happened with Katrina, for example, was that when the religious groups started to come in and to try to give aid and comfort in the face of a natural disaster, all the petty jurisdictional battles 
meant that they were barred at the door so they couldn't get into New Orleans as the Superdome was in black. So you, you have to actually do that. The second thing you have to do is you have to have some moral leadership from the White House. What is so striking about the 2015 speech is what the president said is not wrong. It's just banal. Yes, we do thank people um, who have served the United States. We do remember with regret the losses that took place. But he has no statement on progress and no statement on policy. And he doesn't want to lift a word, to say a word, uh, to denounce the terror that's taking place or to indicate that there'll be very strong American logistical support in whatever ways that we can start to provide. There's a kind of a cold, callous indifference to this. And I mean, you have to understand the symbolism. The man spends three weeks on Martha's Vineyard playing golf at the same time that the world starts to be falling apart. Nobody is saying that he ought to pull a Jimmy Carter and sit in the White House until this problem is over. But the silence and the lack of compassion and the lack of some clear definition is, in fact, I think, just a void in leadership. And so now the European nations will start to squabble amongst themselves. I, as you know, many years ago, two years ago to be precise, or a year and a half ago actually, I wrote this piece on Pax Americana saying, unless you have the American guarantee, everything will decentralize and fall apart. That speech was actually given, a, or article was written about a month before the president gave his speech, and it happened with a level of fury and quickness that I did not even anticipate myself. But the situations went in complete disintegration, and the only decisive move is our good friend Mr. Putin is sending more heavy weapons to hold up the Bashar Assad regime inside Syria. I mean, this is just a debacle of epic proportions. You go out of your way in this piece to flag the remarks that President Obama made earlier this year at the National Prayer Breakfast, seeming to compare the influence of Islam on groups like ISIS to the influence of Christianity on the Crusaders. But what you're really critical of there is sort of the underlying mindset that it betrays. Explain that. Well, look, I mean the only way in which you could mount a, a serious normative moral and military offense is to basically assume and to make it clear to the world that you are better than the guys whom you were trying to attack. If in fact you start going in and the first thing you say is before we get on our high course, let's remember what happened during the Crusades. Now, I don't believe that the president has the foggiest idea of what happened during the Crusades. And for these purposes, let's assume that lots of terrible things did happen as in fact they did. Uh, the real question is, do you really want to say to the United States, we have no moral superiority because of what a bunch of popes and other people did um, 950 years ago um, in some obscure place, you know, in the Holy Land or whatever? Uh, what you have to do is say something else. In the history of Western civilization, there have been many moments of which we are not proud. The Crusades may be one. Uh, certainly slavery is another. But the great capacity that we have is the ability for self-criticism and through discourse and political persuasion to correct these errors. These people have not corrected their errors. They are basically worse than we were a thousand years ago. And anybody who claims moral equivalence between them and us on the grounds that we fought the Crusades simply is blind to everything that happened since that time. It's a very different speech. But his speech, in effect, says, now we have another reason not to act because we're no better than the other guys. And I just do not understand the, the frame of mind of a major figure who is prepared to denigrate his own nation by using these far-fetched examples without understanding the larger context in which Western civilization has created a set of institutions of which it can be proud and which the Middle East is suffering from an endless turmoil because they do not have the slightest organization 
reorganization of a separation of church and state, any any limitations on arbitrary power, any protection of private enterprise and ordinary business, any protection of religious freedom. And to create this kind of equivalence in the face of this vast gulf is in fact to cede the high ground. And that's of course exactly what they did with the Iranian treaty when the first paragraph of which announces, you know, everybody knows that the Iranians have no intentions to make military use of power. Um, We legitimate our opponents by saying preposterous things about ourselves and saying equally preposterous things about them. We've talked before on the show about how much your foreign policy views deviate from what's what's considered typical for libertarians these days, which is the more non-interventionist approach to use their Mm -hmm. term. Uh, Do you think that having a broadly libertarian view of the world really – compels any specific precepts on foreign policy or does it maybe just make more sense to think of those as independent variables? Um, Look, I do think that a libertarian position does give you a good deal. Let me just start the first thing. One is that the basic position of libertarianism is that you do not engage in aggressive nation actions against another nation by trying to kill their people or take over their territory. Any American government which decided to disregard that norm and to bomb willy-nilly anybody who stood in our way would in fact be a moral and legal outrage. And so it's a really powerful system for constraint. But the hard part comes not when the United States is the aggressor but trying to figure out what you're supposed to do when there's somebody else who's aggressing. And this reason is is difficult for a number of reasons. One is if in fact the attacks have taken place, you have to decide exactly how to respond. If it's an attack against you, of course, you could always surrender. But generally speaking, you're going to try to figure out how it is that you marshal your resources in a way that stops the attack without committing human rights atrocities of your own. That's not an easy inquiry, but it's what you want. When you're dealing with the protection of third persons and you put aside the possibility that it's a prelude of an attack against you, there's no duty under libertarian theory to intervene. If A is hitting B, C does not have to come to the aid of Mr. B, although it can. So you have to make moral judgments as to whether or not you get in there. And you know that if you do nothing, evil is going to succeed and what has happened the first time will take place. And there'll be more and more violations of libertarian rights because of the passivity that you have taken. In the end, they may hit you. They may not. But I think virtually every decent government would come to the conclusion that there is at some point we're prepared to sacrifice American resources and even American lives to protect against mass atrocities that are happening to other people. And I don't think the president is prepared to engage in a serious discussion about when and how that particular point takes place. So the second part is a libertarian theory does not require that you remain silent or inactive in the face of serious threats of force. Exactly how you respond to threats of force is one of the great challenges, even in the ordinary law of assault. So, for example, if somebody sits there to give the famous case, um, if this were not a size time, I would strike you dead with my sword. Can you respond to him or is it just a conditional threat and he really doesn't mean it so you can't touch it? Or is it a ruse? And he says, I'm trying to get you off guard and then to strike. Just figuring out how you deal with threats when it's too soon to act, when it's too late to act, only gets more complicated in the international arena. And it's not for somebody like me to tell the president how to wage a war. What it is for me to say is that if you simply go into this thing assuming that anytime you get involved in a ground war, you're being dragged in against your will, that this is off bounds, what you've done is you've taken the most viable options and simply removed them from the table. And all these innocent people who are being slaughtered all throughout the Middle East, being sent on boats and God knows what else, on rafts to get to safety, 
are in fact paying the price of our neglect. And I could not sleep at night if I were the president of the United States, knowing that there are now 5 million refugees coming out of these countries and another 5 million that will follow. And you don't say a single word about this and you don't commit a single dollar of American resources to try and rectify the situation. The air power is certainly useful, but it's too little. It doesn't do the job. If he doesn't understand that now, then he's not paying attention to his own situation in war room reports. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. Thank you.